Good morning. It is uh, great to be back and resume our Parsha class together. I probably didn't miss you. You maybe missed me. I hope you did. But it's good to be back either way. I did miss you. I'm just joking. I missed you. Okay, our Parsha class this morning is uh, dedicated in memory of my grandfather, my father's father, whose Yeretzite is today. Yehuda Leib ben Shlomo Zalman, a very special man. I didn't get to know him well. Unfortunately, I was a very little boy when he passed away. My younger bo- brother was born two days later, in the middle of uh, my father sitting shiva. But uh, he was an honest man, a humble man, and uh, had an influence on his family that created a Torah family, which is a great credit to him, often with a lot of sacrifice, as Neshama should have in Aliyah. We're learning Parshas Ekev together, page 980 in the Art Scroll Stone Chumash. We'll resume our usual format, which is to do an overview of the Parsha, and then to delve into some specific psukim together. I always mention with, with Sefer Dvarim, this is the first parsha I'm back for in Sefer Dvarim, Sefer Dvarim is the ultimate Musar Sefer. It's phenomenal. And this is brought down by many Gedol Yisrael, many great rabbis, that one need not feel obligated to go to the classic Musar Svarim. It's not a coincidence. Many Rebbe said that we read Sefer Dvarim in the summertime as we are counting down and uh, rapidly approaching the month of Elul, the words of Zoran, the words of Moshe Rabbeinu himself are the greatest Musa. And there's a theme that permeates throughout Parshas Ekev, which I want, to, uh, I want to study with you today. And it's the theme, essentially, it's the theme of all Dvarim, but Ekev in particular of Emuna, that we are at the culmination, the last day of Moshe's life. He's giving this monologue, this soliloquy. He's delivering a final message to the Jewish people. And he's about to depart from them. He has taken them from their infancy through their adolescence, hopefully into an adult nation. And they're about to enter the land of Israel. They're about to form a nation. They're going to settle the land, conquer the land, settle the land, build a judicial system, build an army, build infrastructure. And Moshe is very frightened, he's very fearful. That the slave, meek nation, who understood that they rely on the Ribbono Shalom, their utter existence, their well-being, their continuity utterly relies and is dependent on Hashem, will enter the land, they'll begin to meet their own success, they'll feel a sense of independence, and there's an amazing fear that they're going to forget, they're going to lose, they're going to drop Hashem. And Moshe's mission, it seems, both in recounting history until that point, and giving a charge for the future is, don't forget where you come from. Don't forget the experiences you had. Don't forget what got you here. And most importantly, don't forget the role, the guiding hand of Hashem on your shoulder. In He was in your history, make Him part of your destiny. That's the theme of Parshas Ekev. The danger of losing Emuna and the benefits of living with Emuna, understanding and identifying the obstacles that may cause it so you can navigate around it. But that is the theme that's pervasive, that permeates and holds, uh, hangs over all of, I think, Parshas Ekev and well beyond. So let's start. Vaya Ekev Tishmun. Again, the overview we'll get to the Psukim later on. But Ekev Tishmun, Ekev is a heel. And we're all familiar. Rashi quotes him. If you listen to what seem like the insignificant, the inconsequential, the lowly mitzvos that no one pays attention to, that we have to live without a sense of a hierarchy. We don't know the measure of different mitzvos. And we don't know that klape shmaya, that in Hashem, from Hashem's perspective, what's considered great, what's lowly. Mitzvahs we dismiss as insignificant and unimportant, 
In Hashem's calculation might be great. And the mitzvahs we think that are so great, in Hashem's calculus might be less significant. Ekev tishmu'un. Don't step on them. Don't walk all over them. The, uh, the OU produced a great contribution now, the uh, fifth and final volume, the Rav on Sefer Dvarim. And here he tells the following, Ekev tishmu'un. He says, Ekev, of course, means a heel, quotes this Rashi we just mentioned, and writes the Rav, we can't argue a specific task should be relegated to someone else because it doesn't seem to play to our unique capabilities. A mitzvah can never be beneath someone to perform. One should fulfill the easy mitzvah simply because one does not know his assignment. Perhaps he was sent precisely to fulfill just such mitzvahs. The Rav interprets the notion of Ekev, not to step on mitzvahs as, we don't know why we're here or what we're meant to do. Don't think I have to solve world peace, I have to do these global, these enormous mitzvahs. And seemingly, I don't have time for that. I'm solving the cure to whatever, I'm achieving world peace. I'm sitting in the base of Medrash, Talmud Torah, Kenegid Kulam. Who has time for these little, the little mitzvahs are the people who can't do the big ones. Says the Rav, no, Ekev Tishmun. There is no little mitzvah. Don't dismiss it and don't delegate it to someone else. Maybe that's your mission. Maybe that's why you were here. The creator of worlds, the Rebun Shalom, the infinite, appoints flesh and blood as his agent, as his shliach. The agency is permanent. From the oath at birth through the moment of death, a person cannot accept or reject an assignment. A person can never know for certain his ultimate purpose. We've discussed at length previously on a Shabbat Shuvah, the notion of identifying our mission on earth, why we are here. We just said it this morning. You woke up and you said, Rabba emuna secha Hashem, your emuna in me is great. If I'm alive, if I woke up, if my contract was renewed for another day, I yet have what to accomplish. I have a mission. And if there's a mitzvah that comes our way, that's not too small. That's our mission. We read Yonah and Yom Kippur because Yonah is the story of you can't run away from your mission. He tries to run away. Hashem says, this is who you're meant to be. This is what you're meant to achieve. This is your mission. He tries to run away and the mission chases him. And there are missions and there are mitzvos which are missions for us. And the Rav describes so beautifully the Yerushalmi and Kedushin, the illustration. We have the small story in the Bavli, but the Yerushalmi gives an expanded version of the lengths that Rav Tarfon went to to honor his mother. Once his mother tore her shoe and rather than allow her to walk barefoot, Rav Tarfon placed his hands under her feet, alternating his hands as she walked. Picture a Rosh Hashiva, a Gadol Ador, a great Talmud Chacham on his hands and knees, walking with his mother outside, so she doesn't get a pebble caught in her foot, a splinter, she doesn't step on something, a shard. He alternates his hands as she takes steps, she's walking on his hands. And when later when Rav Tarfon fell ill, the rabbis came to visit him, Rav Tarfon's mother asked him to daven for his recovery and the merit of his honoring her so excessively. And when the rabbi said, what did he do? She related the incident of the torn shoe. And so the Yerushalmi says that the rabbis responded, even had he done so one million times, he would not have fulfilled even half the biblical imperative of honoring parents. And says the Rav, the commentaries on the Yerushalmi ask the obvious question. When one is concerned for the well-being of someone who's sick, one normally reflects on that person's good deeds and prays for his recovery. Honoring one's parents is one of the few mitzvahs for which the Torah specifically designates long life as a reward. Why of all times, or if Tarifon lay ill, did the rabbi see fit to minimize the extraordinary honor? It's not just like a Jewish mother. You think what he did, it was a, it was a one one millionth of what he should have done to show me covered, you know, guilt. It wasn't enough. It was impressive. He could, no, that's not what it's about. Why? He's ill. You're trying to invoke schuyos, merits, for his recovery. Why highlight that it could have been more? So in addressing the question, I don't know how often the Rav quoted the Chafetz Chaim, but apparently here he did, at least according to the new Chumash. 
The address in the question of the Chavetz Chaim explained that one can never know his designated assignment. Naturally, one would assume that the assignment of Rav Tarf, one of the greatest Torah sages, was the dissemination of Torah along with his august contemporaries, Rav Gamliel, Rabbi Akiva, and so on. Yet the rabbis who came to visit Rav Tarf were not quite sure. Maybe his purpose on earth was indeed to disseminate Torah. On the other hand, maybe he was created to serve his mother in her old age. For this purpose, he did not need to become the great sage of Tarfon. A simple, unlearned Jew could have fulfilled that assignment. Perhaps becoming a Torah giant was only a secondary minor assignment. But his major purpose on earth was to help his aging mother. And when the visiting rabbis heard his mother suggest Rav Tarfon had exceeded the requirements of the mitzvah, they in essence responded, God forbid. If Rav Tarfon completely fulfilled his assignment, there's no longer a reason to remain on earth. Then he would succumb to his illness. Only by invoking that he hasn't fulfilled his mission, that's the schus through which they davened, that in fact he have a recovery and a longer life so he could return to his mission, his mission to take care of his mother. So the Rav says, Ekev Tishmu'un. Rav Tarfon could have said, I got to give Sheikh Chloe. I got to sit and learn Basmada. Let somebody else take care of my mother. I'll hire an aide. I'll put her in a home. I'll ask one of my Talmidim to be Meshat to take care of her. I got to give Sheikh I'm the Rosh Hashiva. I got to give Sheikh Chloe. But he understood that Ekev Tishmu'un. What most people step on is insignificant. We can't measure. And we don't know what our mission is. And we shouldn't dismiss as inconsequential, but we should embrace the mitzvahs that come our way because maybe that's what we're meant to do. It's why we're meant to be here at this moment. I think it's a very beautiful um, spin, interpretation of the Rav on that notion of, of Aiken, Akev. Sure. Right. It's also, there's multiple interpretations. It's also an acronym, acronym, Chassidah Shereb is seen as an acronym for Kadesh Atzmacha B'Mutterlach, Ekev, Kadesh Atzmacha B'Mutter. You have to throw in the Lamed for Lach. There's a lot of interpretations, but that's the one we're going to share for now. So the Torah continues and tells us, Ve'isir Hashem Nemcha Kacholi, that if you in fact live with this recognition, with this emuna, if you observe shmarta mesayisim asam, you embrace the mitzvahs, even the small ones, the seemingly insignificant ones, the ones that don't matter, but they all matter, then Hashem will repay. There's, he'll reciprocate with love and with blessing, with bracha, and you'll feel it in your life. Baruch tiyem mikol amim, you'll be blessed. Ve'isir Hashem imcha kocholi, Hashem will remove all the illnesses and the maladies that you knew in Egypt, that you won't suffer from them. In fact, He'll place them, on, he'll place them instead on your enemies. What is the dual language? Hashem will heal you, He'll protect you from illness and from the maladies of Egypt. It says two things. The Yerushalmi in Shabbos says, Zeharayon. Yerushalmi and Shabbos says in the uh, 14th parak, when the Torah says Hashem will remove illness, it means Hashem will remove worries and fears and anxieties. You know, there are physical maladies that plague people. There's aches and pains and krechts and, and uh, chronic illness. There's physical pains that hold a person back. But even perhaps more debilitating are mental health challenges. We've seen in our time a proliferation of anxiety, of depression. And Hashem says, I'm not talking about clinical depression that needs treatment, often medication, certainly therapy. I'm not saying Amuna is the antidote to depression and anxiety. Not clinically diagnosed. But I'm talking about just the regular anxiety that 
is in the DNA of every Jew. And what the Torah is saying is that the antidote to that, not clinical, not rising to the level of clinical anxiety, you want to get rid of the rayon, that you lie there at night, you can't sleep, you have Jewish insomnia because you're worried about what will be, and who will pay for what's going to be, and what will happen, and who will live, and who will die, and what kind of nachas will you have, and what will... You wonder what the answer is. The answer is, the answer is see Hashem in your life. If you welcome Hashem into your life, then you have nothing else that you have to, that you have to worry about. That's the theme, that's the essence of our parsha is Amuna. See Hashem, feel Hashem, connect with Hashem. I know the Amuna Shir is tomorrow, but Parsha Zekev, the Amuna Shir is every day that week. So Amuna, if you feel, you welcome, you invite, and you're mindful of Hashem's presence in your life, you stop yourself. And you set aside the angst and the anxiety and the worry and the fear, and you sleep like a baby. The, in Allah Tshuva, Rabbi Soloveitchik tells the story of a psychiatrist who said to him, what do you mean in Yom Naram you're going to daven? We daven for fear. Fear is debilitating. It's paralyzing. Fear is a negative attribute or quality. Psychiatrist said, I make a living because people have fear, and I try to rid them of it. Why would we daven to have fear? And the Rav answered him and he said, you don't understand, when we say, we're not asking for fear of heights or fear of darkness, agoraphobia, fear of public places, fear of speaking. We're asking for one fear and it is the fear that relieves all other fears. If one lives with a sense of the awesomeness, not fear, the awesomeness of the Ribbonah Shalom, if you live with a, a mindfulness of Hashem's limitless power, His role in dictating everything in our life, then you have nothing else to worry about. Whatever happens is what's meant to be. You have nothing else to fear. So we're not promoting or encouraging fear by encouraging and promoting Yiras Shamayim, Yiras Hashem, awe and fear of Hashem. It relieves all other fear. Where'd the Rav get that from? He got it from Rav Chaim Velazhner. Nefesh Chaim talks about it. Where'd Rav Chaim Velazhner get it from? He got it from Agra and Mishlei. Pasuk says this, uh, I saw this an amazing sefer, Sichos and Rav Shlomo Hafman. And he quotes this amazing Gura. The Pasuk in Mishlei says, Yiras Hashem, it's the summer, so the Parsha Shir is like three hours. Everyone okay with that? We're still in the overview. We're on the first Pasuk of the overview before we get to the Pasuk and we're going to... I was off for a while. I have a lot to say. The Pasuk in Mishlei says, Yiras Hashem tosif yamim, ushnos rishayim tikzorna. Yiras Hashem tosif yamim. If you want to add longevity... If you want to add years to your life, grow your Yirah Shemayim. Work to have a greater sense of the presence of Hashem in your life. Live with awe and acknowledgement of Hashem. It adds years. Now you'll say, what do you mean? Religious scrupulosity and vigilance. It'll take years of my life. It's so limiting. It's so rigid. It's so... It adds years. Listen to the Gura's comment. Yiras Hashem Tosiv Yom says the Gura, there in Mishle, the 10th parak. Kasher ha'odom tamid b'yirav chayav... When a person is always afraid, when you're filled with anxiety and fear and worry, your life is no life. How many people who have so much to be happy about, and so much to be proud about, and so much to look forward to, and so much nachas, and so much joy, and so much bracha, they ruin their own life because rather than focus and embrace that, they're focused what will be, and how do I know, and how do I control it, and how can I... Fear, fear, anxiety, anxiety, anxiety. They can't sleep, they can't be happy, they can't experience a moment, they're never in the present. Chayav, enam chayim, says the Gura. They have no life. And that anxiety, which I'm not going to spend the time, but all the research measures its impact physiologically on your blood pressure, on your vascular system, on everything. 
That anxiety and worry expresses itself in your pillbox, in your doctor's appointments. You literally have no life. You go to the doctor every day. If you'd stop worrying, you could stop going to the doctor. You'd be healthy, you'd be fine. That worry is killing you, says the Gura. But you live with awe, with mindfulness of the presence of Hashem, and you say, you know what? I'm going to do the best I can. In every decision, in every moment, I'm going to do the best I can. I'm not saying to be passive. I'm not saying to be fatalistic. I'm not saying not to take initiative. Says the Gura, take initiative, do everything you can, but once you have, let go and let God. Why would you ever be anxious? Whatever happens was meant to be. This last line in the Graz, where the Rav got it. Fear of Hashem is unlike any other fear. All other fears are debilitating, are limiting. Fear of Hashem is liberating. It operates in exactly the opposite way. Every other fear is limiting and debilitating. Fear of Hashem is liberating. It frees you. Now you could live life. Now you're not anxious and worried. Now you don't have sleepless nights. Now you don't ruin the relationships. Now you're not at the doctor all day. Now you're not filling your, your prescriptions at the pharmacy all day because of anxiety. Let go and realize Hashem is in your life. Two separate, physical health and mental health. And the two are very intertwined. The more that you have balance, stability in mental health, the greater you're going to have physical health. And there are all kinds of things in the environment that influence it. There are people we can't control. There are natural disasters we can't control. There are circumstances we can't control. But what we can control is how we react and how we feel. And when we live with fear and anxiety, chayav ein chayim. You have no life. And when you let go and you let Hashem, you have your Hashemayim. It's liberating. Now you begin to live. V'heisir Hashem imcha. V'heisir Hashem. A life of emunah and Hashem removes kocholi, removes the anxiety. Again, I just want to clarify. I'm not talking about, I'm not diagnosed anxiety, depression that needs real treatment. I'm not saying just listen to some emunah shiurim and that's the solution. You need to go to a therapy, it needs real treatment. But I'm talking about the anxiety that's inherent in everyone that doesn't rise to clinical anxiety, emunah. Living with emunah is an amazing resolution to it. So the Torah warns us. You got a comment? It's Perak Yud Pasachav something. Perak Yud Pasachav Zayin in Mishlein. Parsha continues by telling us that when you enter the land, don't be too uh, intimidated or fearful of the um, nations of the world who are there. Recognize that you will conquer them because Hashem has your back. He has your back. And, um, and when you get into that land and conquer them, you have to Get rid of their corruption. Get rid of their idolatry. Rid it from your midst. What is their corruption and what is their idolatry? So the parsha continues, Burn their idols in fire. And don't bring an abomination into your home. What is the Torah referring to with these two statements? I'm on page 982. Two things. Number one, get rid of Psilei Elohim, burn their idols. And number two, don't bring the Tzoeva into your home. What is that word Tzoeva? The word Tzoeva means, what does it mean? It means it's an abomination. We too frequently politicize the use of that word by only applying it 
to the circumstances that we politically want to, that's more than politically, halachically disagree with. The Torah uses the word, interestingly, toeva in several places. If you're dishonest in business, you have dishonest weights and measures, it's a toeva. If you eat unkosher food, it's a toeva. The Torah uses the word toeva in several places. Um, dishonest business practices, and non-kosher food, and exact weights and measures, and so on. So what does it mean here, don't bring a toeva into your home? It's not talking about don't bring people of a certain orientation, or don't bring... So what does it mean, don't bring it into your home? So the Rambam and the Ramban understand that idols themselves, idols themselves are a toeva. They're an abomination. Don't hang on the walls of your home pictures of celebrities and athletes and people who are worshipped in a form, in the modern contemporary form of idolatry. Don't worship through magazine covers, people and fashions and fads that are the contemporary form of idolatry. The Ramban and the Rambam see idols themselves are a toeva. We have messages and we have images in our homes that hang on the walls, literally or figuratively, which are a toeva, which are confusing our children. Sefer HaChinuch includes the, extends the prohibition to another form of idolatry. Sefer HaChinuch says, what's the toeva the Pesach's talking about here? The toeva is money. Don't earn profits from an unethical way. Your, your Helega Shabbos meal, your delicacies, you're feeding all these guests, but you cut corners to earn the money to host those guests, to serve that Shabbos meal, to buy these svarim, don't bring that into your home. It's a toeva. If you earn the money by cutting corners, by being dishonest, it's a toeva, it's an abomination. Don't bring that into your home. But the Gemara in Sotah and Davdalad has an entirely different interpretation of what that toeva is. Gemara Sota says, Don't bring an abomination to your home. Pasuk in Mishle says, Someone with a haughty heart, a balgaiva, is an abomination. If you are arrogant, if you have hubris, if you think you're all that, if you think you're self-made, if you think you are immune, if you think you're above, superior to others, that's an abomination to Hashem. That's a form of idolatry. You're not worshipping someone else, you're worshipping yourself. According to the Gemara, the to'eva, that our Pasuk, that our Pasha is saying, don't bring into your homes, it's either idolatry, it's money, cutting corners, or it's gaifa. It's gaifa, it's conceit, it's arrogance, it's hubris. You made a great business deal, or you gave a great sheer, or you think you're great looking, or you have certain social skills, you've achieved, you've accomplished certain things in life, don't bring that sense of pride, that sense of arrogance into your home. And that's the theme of the parsha. Why shouldn't you bring it into your home? You might say in your heart, this is Moshe's great fear. Kozman, they're wandering in the desert 40 years. They have miraculous, their clothing is not getting worn out. Moshe references in our parsha, their shoes are not being worn out. So they know that's a miracle. They don't think that the clothing they're wearing is because they worked hard, they could shop at the fanciest department stores, they could keep up with the latest fashion and fad. They know it's a miracle from Hashem. When they're eating the greatest delicacy, the man tasting like anything they want, they know. It's not that they can afford, what was that, talk about a toeva, I won't say which community, but the restaurant that had a thousand dollar steak, made of gold or something. Anyone follow that last year, two years ago? It's a toeva, that's a mamish, a toeva, that waste of money. So you're eating that golden steak, and it's $1,000 down the drain. That's a toeva. 
of the arrogance, you think, but they're eating mon. It falls from Shemayim every day. They know it's not them. So they know Moshe sees a 40-year incubator in the desert, an incubator for humility. There's no place that they felt a greater sense of dependence ever than walking through the Midbar. And Moshe's great fear is you're going to enter the land. You're going to start businesses. They're going to be successful. You're not going to clouds of glory going to protect you. You're going to have an army and they're going to fight. And you're going to say IDF is the most powerful army in the world. And they're the ones who are responsible for our success. They alone. You're going to get haughty. You're going to get arrogant. And you're going to say, It's my, the might of my hand. So Moshe says, what's the antidote? Remember, Hashem is the one who gave you the strength. When you find that success, don't be tempted by arrogance and conceit. Stay humble. Remember, Hashem is the one who gives koach. In numerous places in our parsha, it's that same message over and over. In fact, Unkelis interprets the Pasuk in a very interesting way. Hashem is the one who gave you the advice to purchase property. You shorted Facebook two weeks ago. Who do you think put the idea in your head? You didn't. You wish you did. I wish I did. We didn't. If you did, I want to talk to you afterwards about our opportunities to dedicate space and BRS. But if someone, if you had the idea to short Facebook two weeks ago, who do you think put the idea in your head? You think it was your idea? You're such a super genius. You have such prophetic insight. You're so prescient. Who do you think put the idea in your head? Says Unklus. Who yehev l'cha'etzel amiknei nechsen? Hashem planted the ideas and the decisions. He exposed you to that article or gave you that thought. Now, if Unklus's position doesn't work well for you, there's a reason. Because next week's parasha we're going to begin. And then we're going to read in a few weeks from now. We make choices. So which is it? And here is the kind of theological dilemma of our parsha. Over and over, our Moshe is beating into our heads. You're not independent, you're dependent. You're not responsible for your success. It's Hashem. So that can breed a sense of, of being passive. As I said, being fatalistic. Why do I have to get up and go to work? If Hashem wants me to be a millionaire without going to work, I'll be a millionaire. If I go work 14 hours a day, He wants me to be poor, I'm going to be poor, so why bother? And here we are, next week's parsha, a few weeks from now. There's Bechira Chavshis. We have free will. It makes a difference. So whose success is it? Are we responsible because we used our free will to make the right choices? I sat and I looked at the computer and I had a thousand stocks to choose from and I chose the right one. And when it did well, it's my success. It's my insights, my brilliance. I'm well read and I'm, I'm analytical. It's my success. It's an expression of my free will. Or no, do you say, it's Hashem. Which is it? So I want to share with you a very famous insight of the Ran. Rabbeinu Nisim, in the 10th drush of his Drushas Aran, it's the most famous of Drushas Aran, or at least the most famous for me, because I know it. So the Ran says the following, I'll read to you his words. He says the meaning of this is as follows. The truth is when people have different talents in different areas. For example, certain people are predisposed to receive wisdom, whereas others are predisposed to devise strategies to gather and amass wealth. On account of this, the wealthy man can truthfully say from a certain angle, it's my ability and the might of my hand, kochi v'atzim yadi. Nevertheless, in so far as that ability was implanted within you, be sure to remember who gives you the ability. Moshe did not say, ki Hashem Moshe did not say, remember Hashem gives you wealth. For if he had said that, he'd be minimizing the fact that the ability implanted within the person is an intermediate cause in the accumulation of the wealth. But that's not the case. 
Therefore, he said, although your ability is what made you this wealth, you should remember who gives you the ability. Remember, It's an amazing insight of the Ran. Hashem is not asking us to concede and act like we had nothing to do with it. You built a successful business. You painted an amazing painting. You gave a great lecture. You accomplished or achieved something wonderful. Hashem's not asking you to concede any pride in having achieved it. Hashem is saying, just notice, be proud that you achieved it, but remember who gave you the skills to do it. Remember where you got the talents. And remember just how quickly they could disappear. Hashem did not say, He said, remember Hashem no sein lecha, koach lasos chayel. He gave you the koach. Where did those talents and skills come from? They came from Hashem. And I'm not going to give you a long list. I want to get back to the parsha in our section. But if you think a person's talents and skills can't just disappear, ask, even though he's trying to make a comeback now, but ask Tiger Woods and ask all these other, I've quoted them before in Drushas, Chuck Knobloch. Anyone remember Chuck Knobloch? Chuck Knobloch was a rookie of the year. He won several World Series rings, gold glove winner, four All-Star games. And in 1999, he lost the ability to do what every little leaguer could do. He could no longer throw from second base to first base. I remember watching his unraveling. It was one of the saddest things I ever saw in my life. Gold glove winner, All-Star. He couldn't throw to first base. He got to the point that he would throw underhand to first base because he had no confidence in his ability to throw. He had to retire. He couldn't do it. Hashem gives us the skill, and as quickly as He gives it, He could take it away. And therefore, the theme of the Pasha, never become a Balgaiva. Realize that our talents and skills, they're on loan from Hashem, and as quickly as we have them, they can disappear. When Elliot Spitzer, the former governor of New York, resigned in disgrace, he was interviewed, and he said, quote, Hubris is terminal. People who fall prey to hubris end up falling themselves. And this is something I think infected me, he said. The fall from grace is painful. It's something through which you learn. Hubris is terminal. And that's the theme of the passion. The way to avoid it is to live with a sense of emuna, to realize it's from Hashem. The uh, smag, Rav Moshe ben Yaakov of Kutzi, who wrote the Sefer Smag, Sefer Mitzvah's Gedolos. In the introduction to the Sefer, he writes something incredible. He says he finished his magnum opus, the Sefer Counting Tariag Mitzvah, 613 Mitzvahs. And that night he had a dream before he published it. And in his dream he writes that he was told, you forgot the foundational mitzvah. You forgot the most important mitzvah. In your count of Tariag, in your enumeration of the 613, you forgot the most important one. And in his dream he saw, what was the most important mitzvah he forgot? The mitzvah not to be haughty. And when he woke, he revised his entire Sefer to add mitzvah losase samach dalid, mitzvah losase 64, the prohibition to ever be arrogant. You could be self-confident. You could be proud of what you achieved, that you did the most with the talents you were given, but never think those talents are on permanent ownership. They're always, always on loan. I quoted one Yankee, I'll quote one more, and we'll move on in the parsha. And that is uh, one of the great Yankees of all time. Mariano Rivera, who's a very religious man. I'm trying to meet with him. Not just because he's the greatest closer of all time, but he actually retired from baseball to become a pastor where he's preaching the word of God. He's a very religious man. And when he was interviewed, the, the greatest closer, one of the greatest pitchers of all time, and he was, he was interviewed when he retired and he said the following quote, Everything I have and everything I became is because of the strength of the Lord. And through Him I've accomplished everything. Not because of my strength, only by His love, His mercy, and His strength. Koach, 
It's all from the Rebona Shalom, and that is the essence, that is the theme of the Parsha. And that is the lesson of food, which is the continuation, the next section of the Parsha. Remember, right now Hashem says, I'm giving you the man, I'm giving you free buffet, it's falling from the big shmorg, is falling from Shemayim. You want a milchik buffet for some reason, that's the holy in Chol Madve Mitzrayim. You want a milchik buffet, Hashem should heal you from that illness, but you want a fleshing buffet, you want a carving station, you want a sushi station, you want stuffed cabbage, whatever you want. It fell from Shemayim, the man tasted like anything you want, and now that won't be here, and you're going to be a farmer, and you're going to have to plow and plant and grow, and don't forget, when you bring in a rich harvest, rich pshuto kemashmo, when you bring in a rich harvest, don't forget where it came from. And when you eat, and you're satiated, and you're satisfied from that eating, don't forget where it came from. V'yachalta, v'savata, uveirachta. When you ate and you're satisfied, don't forget to make a bracha. I saw a great pshat in the Imre Chaim, the vision of Tzarebbe. So the vision of Tzarebbe says, he has very succinct, very short. Each entry is literally one sentence. So the vision of Tzarebbe says, V'savato v'irachta s'ashem elokecha, hasviya shalcha tehei mima she'ata mevarech s'ashem elokecha. We think it's v'yachalta v'savata, you ate and it was a good meal. If a Jew could ever have a meal that they're satisfied with, our own Chef Gersh used to have a restaurant in St. Louis. And the bottom of his receipt, it was printed on the bottom of his receipts in his restaurant, thank you for coming, was anything okay? <laughs> once, it once made it on the Jay Leno show. Jay Leno used to do the show different things. He said it once made it onto that show. Thank you for coming, was anything okay? So, v'yachalta v'savata. You ate, and was anything okay? You were happy, v'savata. Uverachta, the response should be that you thank Hashem. Says the vision of the Rebbe, no. V'yachalta, you ate. You took care of the goof. You fed yourself physically. But where does the sviya come from? What will make you feel satisfied? What will make you feel full? What will make you feel gishmak? Not the food. Not the all-you-can-eat buffet special. But that It's the fact that your eating was in a spiritual context that you thanked Hashem before, you thanked Hashem after, you made sure it was kosher. When you eat like a glutton, like a pig, like a behemoth, then no matter how full your belly feels, spiritually you feel empty. But when you eat and you thank Hashem for having eaten and the eating is in itself a spiritual experience, then the savata. The sviya, the fullness, comes from having thanked Hashem. It's a beautiful, it's a geshmak pshat by the vision of Tzarebbe. The Rav says, it's not a coincidence, that it's right after this warning about forgetting Hashem, that we have this notion about eating in fullness. The Rav in his Chumash writes, the Gemara says in Brachos, although we bow in the Thanksgiving section of the Amidah, this is an amazing insight of the Rav. I read this this morning, this is one of those game changers for you that changes your perspective on everything. The Rav contrasts benching with Shemona Esrei. We think that every time you daven and talk to Hashem, it demands the same posture, literally and, physical, and, and uh, symbolically posture, that you're humble, you're bent over, you feel dependent, you feel incomplete, you feel inadequate. And the Rav says, no. Benching and davening are two totally different experiences. Listen to his words. He says... Although we bow in Hodah, right, when you say Modim, you bow, during the recitation of Birchas HaMazon, it's inappropriate. The Gemara says, bowing during benching is wrong, bowing during the Amidah, of course, is right. This distinction in practice is rooted in the fundamental different modes of approaching Hashem that we experience in prayer versus benching. 
Prayer is the act of insubstantial man lacking the wherewithal to subsist, appearing before the all-powerful being upon whom he exists, his existence depends. So the prerequisite to davening is that you realize that you're agornished. Davening is an exercise in humility. I take three steps forward and I say, Hashem, I'm about to go to work and I'm going to do everything I can and I think I accomplish everything, but I'm coming to you for it. It's all up to you. I need you. Rafainu, I need you. Baruch Aleinu, I need you. I need you for everything. It's a real sense of our utter inadequacy and uh, dependence on Hashem. When one davens, one is afflicted with troubles and unable to overcome them without the help of Hashem. At the core of davening is focusing on everything you don't have and how you need it from Hashem. Gemara quotes the Pasuk from uh, Tehillim, a prayer of the afflicted when he is overwhelmed. It's proof that one may not pray from a highly situated place in a room regarding prayer. We know, The chazan, ideally, is supposed to daven from a place that's low down, to feel low, to feel incomplete. Right? I've mentioned before, if you've been to the Ramah Shul in Krakow, the Ramah Shul in Krakow, you step down into the place where the chazan davens. It's not a bima. The Gemara says you're not supposed to daven from a platform where you feel high and mighty and accomplished and complete. Mimamakim. You step down and you feel... That's why when you choose a chazan, it's best to choose not the most successful person who has everything they need and want in life. You choose a person who's going to represent us from the perspective of dependence. I need you, Hashem. I'm desperate for something. Benching, on the other hand, writes the Rav, encapsulates an entirely different attitude. Torah commands, V'yachalta v'savata uveirachta. Eat! And if you had half a meal, and you're still hungry at the end, then not uveirachta. You can't bench. You have to have the minimum shear in order to be able to, to bench. Birchas HaMazan is recited on a full stomach to thank Hashem for the bounty and the material blessings He has given us. Bowing, which is symbolic of dependence and the insufficiency of the person, reflects the attitude of prayer, but is incongruous with Birchas HaMazan. Similarly, find one who is drunk may not daven, Gemara and Brachos, but the Yerushalmi and Shumo says that one who is drunk can still say benching. Drunkenness reflects an attitude of, sat- of being sated and abundance, having enjoyed the earth's produce. This disposition conflicts with the prayer experience of feeling totally dependent, but is compatible with benching, which is meant to follow the experience of enjoying the material blessing of Hashem and feeling totally content and satisfied by them. It's an incredible insight of the Rav. I never saw it this way. When you daven... You feel incomplete, dependent, inadequate. You focus on what you don't have. And when you bench, you focus on having everything. Davening comes from the perspective of what I'm lacking, or what I'm lacking because there are people around me lacking. And benching comes from the perspective, not what I'm lacking, but what I have, the savata. I'm full, I'm satiated. I have everything I need. But the Torah right after this says, Be careful, you're going to forget Hashem. The purpose of benching is to prevent the arrogance which creeps into man's heart and causes us to forget that Hashem is our Creator. Fundamentally, writes the Rav, Birkas HaMazun is not an act of thanksgiving or praise, but an act of remembering Hashem. We're supposed to bench every day and to carry the theme of benching into the rest of our day. That visavata, that I'm satisfied, that I have my lot in life, and that it all comes from where? Hashem. I could afford to eat on this china and drink from this crystal and eat these delicacies. I could pay that bill at that restaurant when I bench. Why? Because it's all from Hashem. And that's why the Torah contrasts the v'yachalta v'savata uveirachta, the very next pasuk, hishamalachal pentishka chaser shashem lokecha, the vilti shmor. Because benching is the antidote to forgetting Hashem. Again, you see, as I was telling you, these are the themes of these, of these parsha. 
parsha continues, remembering the experience of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim, how we left, the miracles with which we left, remembering uh, the Chet Egel, and Moshe went back up on the mountain. The Rav deals with this too. It says, I fell down before Hashem 40 days and 40 nights. And the Rav wonders that Moshe already says he achieved forgiveness of Hashem. He came down, he broke the luchos. God says, I've had it. These are an incorrigible people. I can't take it anymore. I'm getting rid of them. Moshe Davins intercedes on their behalf and Hashem forgives. Then he goes back up another 40 days, another 40 nights to Davin. Wonders the Rav, what was he davening for the second time? If he already got forgiveness, why did he have to go back up and daven a second time? And listen to this great insight. Not only to our relationship with Hashem, but relationships in general. Says the Rav, when a Jew makes a mistake, he writes sins, but I translate sin as mistake, as you know. When a Jew makes a mistake, he must make two requests of Hashem. First, that he not be punished. And second, the relationship be restored as it was before the mistake. The original prayer covered the first request, but he could not make the second request because Israel at the moment was dancing around the calf. Only after the repentance could Moshe make the second request, so he climbs the mountain to start again. When you put a strain on a relationship, when you make a mistake, first you have to achieve forgiveness for the mistake. And then you have to do the second round of work, which is to restore the relationship to where it was and to make it even, to make it even better. Temporary Aron... Aaron's death, Hashem's reconciliation. You knew the miracles, you lived them, don't ever forget them. The virtues of the land, we have beautiful references, really kind of the description. Here we have this notion that Hashem is Doresh Osa. He's Doresh Tzion. Hashem longs for Eretz Yisrael. His interaction with Israel, we spoke about in the past, if you go on Waiyatoria, so we gave a share on this element, the singularity of the land of Israel. Its uniqueness, its singularity comes from our Parsha. Unlike all the rest of the globe and the galaxies and the planets, the constellations, Hashem's relationship to the land of Israel is distinct. It's singular. It's categorically different. He's Dorish Tamid, he's always there. When the rain falls, it's only because of Hashem. It's not like Egypt that's that's irrigated from the Nile. But Hashem is described as a Dorish Osa. Hashem is Dorish. He, he follows its, how it's doing. He's, he questions its well-being. He longs, he seeks it out. He's a Dorish. The Navi bemoans that Zion Dorish ein la. Zion, Zion Dorish ein la. And the Gemara learns from there, Mikan, that Zion boy Drisha. We learn from here that Zion, Israel, demands Drisha. You have to inquire, seek it out, care about it. And in fact, we know that I don't want to use the political term Zionist or religious term Zionist, but I mean those who care about Zion. The Kuzari of Yudah Levi, Zion Halotishali, before the word Zionist was invented. The Gra, whose Talmidim were the, among the earliest ones to make Aliyah, would probably not be characterized as a classic Zionist politically, religiously, but I'm using Zion in the form of Zion here. So Zion by Jerisha requires that demands. So those who care about Zion are called Dorshet Zion. The Dorshet Zion. They're known through the generation and through the ages as the Dorshet Zion. And you see from here, how do, you, how do you do this today in our time? So I hold the following. When I wake up in the morning, the first time I grab my cell phone, the first thing I look at every day when I grab my cell phone is Times of Israel. It's the first app I open. When I open my eyes before anything else, before I look at any texts or WhatsApp or emails or the news or what will be with the stock market 
or what happened last night in the late game on the West Coast that the Yankees are playing there. Before I look at anything else, times of Israel. Tzion Doresh Eila, Mikan Tzion Boy Drisha. Hashem is a Doresh Tzion. Obviously, move to Israel, Aliyah. We all know we should be, not if, but when. But until then, you can be a Doresh Tzion from the comfort of under the palm trees of Boca. <coughs> you can be a Doresh Tzion through technology in real time from anywhere in the world by caring about Israel. A lot more to say about this, but not now. We have the second paragraph of Shema here at the end of our parsha. Im Shamoa Tishmu, I share it on our WhatsApp group. If you're not on our Amuna WhatsApp group, I'm happy to add you. Let me know. A couple of uh, insights a week we put on there. I shared a beautiful Orachayim this morning on the words Im Shamoa Tishmu. Ask someone sitting near you who is on that group if you're not. Um, and that's the end of the Pasha. Let's go back now. We have only a few minutes left to look at some Sukkim. Page 990. Page 990, Perak Yud, Pasuk Yud Beis. Chapter 10, verse 12. I give up. V'yatay Yisrael! Two years ago, Parsha Shir, it's online. We dealt with this one Pasuk in depth. We're not going to deal with this Pasuk. If you want to talk about Yerash more, or Rafir, it was the Parsha Shir two years ago. You could listen online. V'yatay Yisrael! Ma'ashem lo'kech ha'shol me'imach. Kim li'yerash ha'shem lo'kech ha'lachas b'chol d'rachav li'avah ha'sol l'avadas ha'shem lo'kech ha'bachol l'avachav b'chol na'avshecha. Moshe turns to the Jewish people and he says, okay, V'yatay Yisrael, and now... What is Hashem asking you? Not much. Just love Him, serve Him with all your heart and all your soul. What's the big deal? That's all He's asking. The Gemara wonders, is it, is it Milsa Zutras? Is this such a small thing? And the Gemara says, In, yes, for Moshe this was small. And that's what we elaborated on two years ago. We're not going to take the time. We're not going to take the time now. We have our new Yadrim. The Torah journal published by our base Medrash is coming out in a couple weeks. And my article in the new volume is about Yerushalayim. It's a lot on this, on this one Pasuk. But the Atay Yisrael, I'll tell you a couple new insights. The Gemara learns, don't read it, Ma Hashem Elokech Me'imach. Don't read it, Ma, what does Hashem want from you? Atikri Ma Ela Me'a. Don't read it, Ma, read it, Me'a. What does the word Me'a mean? A hundred. Mikan, from here we learn the obligation that you have to make a minimum of 100 brachos every day. A minimum of 100 brachos a day. It's a halacha. You have to make 100 brachos a day. Now on the average day, that's not hard. We're not going to do the math now, but if you take Shemona Esrei, 19 brachos times 3, you're well on your way. Throw in some eating, throw in some going to the bathroom, sow in some other mitzvah brachos. You live in Florida in the summer, you're going to make a few thunder and lightning brachos a day. You're good. You're at your 100, no problem. Shabbos, it's more complicated to get to your 100 brachas. In fact, I spent Shabbos in New Square a few weeks ago, which I'll write about or talk about more another time. But at Shabbos lunch, we made Kiddush. And before we washed for the challah, the chassidish minag is, you have some herring, some kichel, the l'chaim after the herring and kichel to cleanse your mouth. So I always knew there was a chassidish minag. I always wanted to bracha she'en you should be washing while you're doing it. So my host explained it's because you're trying to add, get to your mea brachas. You've got to get to your hundred. So you've got to add more layers and courses. And at least in his interpretation, that's a, le- that's a legitimate reason for it to not be a bracha she'en a to get to your hundred brachas. So therefore, even before you wash, you're already making brachas on other foods. We'll leave the halachic analysis of his halachic analysis another time. But not ma ha but mea. What does that have to do with the yura or so? So the Mephoshim says so beautifully. Why is it that we have to make a hundred brachas a day? 
100 brachas a day. Throw in 15 brachas of birchas hashachar when you wake up in the morning. You're well on your way. It's not hard to do. But why? Because if you want Yerah Shemayim, so throughout the day, there are points of time where we pause and remember this Hashem. I just came out of the bathroom. Wow, the plumbing all worked. Thank you, Hashem. I'm about to eat something. Came from, thank you, Hashem. Birchas HaShachar. I'm able to walk and see and hear. I have clothing to wear. Thank you, Hashem. Not Ma Hashem Elokecha, but Meya Hashem Elokecha Shomeimach. Hashem's asking you a hundred times a day to remember He's there. To remember He's there. You know, in marriage, it's so critically important that there are bids for connection. Touches, not literally touches, but a text message is a touch. How's it going? What's happening? How's your day? Just connecting. Healthy marriages, both sides want to be checking in regularly. Unhealthy marriages, three weeks they haven't talked, they forgot they haven't talked, they're somewhere, they never checked in, they don't even know where the other one is. A healthy HaKadosh Baruch says, check in with me a hundred times a day. You want to live with a mindfulness and a consciousness of, of Yerushalayim? Check in with me a hundred times a day. I'll tell you when, because I'm in your life a hundred times a day, you just have to notice that I'm there. So that's not Atikre Ma'ela Meya. A second amazing Chavetz Chaim. Chavetz Chaim and Avas Chesed, and I reserve the right to use this in a drasha, maybe even the Shabbos, so don't necessarily remember it. But the Chavetz Chaim says the following. Such a beautiful insight. He says, he says, one of the greatest obstacles to living a meaningful, fulfilled life is when we procrastinate. Is when we're mindless, when we're not living in the present, we're not living in the moment. Therefore, he suggests, the Chavetz Chaim, read this Pasuk. What is Hashem Elokecha Shomeimach? What is He asking of us? Viata. Be here now. Live in the now. Live in the now. Listen to what the Chavetz Chaim writes. Ein ata ela tshuva. Shenemar viata Yisrael ma'ashem lekecha shomimach. V'lechore heichan ramaz tshuva b'tevas ata. Where do you see tshuva within the word viata? Says the Chavetz Chaim, b'tevas liras Hashem lekecha nuchal irmoz tshuva. Aval lo b'tevas viata. V'nuchal lomar da kavanu huzeo ma'ashem kasavnu. Ikar koach ha'yitzahara shumata la'adam lomar how does the Yitzhahara work? It says you don't have time today to learn. You don't have time today to get to Minyan. You don't have time today to visit her in the hospital. You don't have time today to invite a guest to Shabbos. The Yitzhahara works by convincing you you have no time. And what's the antidote to the Yitzhahara is viata, is to realize that you have the time for the things that are important. You're wasting time on so much narishkeit. You have the, the antidote to the Yitzhahara is to live with the sense of viata, the mentality of viata. What is Hashem asking of us? All He's asking of us is viata, to be present, to live in the moment. That is the antidote, that is the response. We're going to stop here. I said we're going to get into certain psukh, and we never really did. But what can I tell you? Don't come back next week if you don't like it. I don't know what to tell you. We're going to stop here. Mirza Hashem, we'll start with this pasuk. I'm going to make a note. We're going to start with the very next pasuk next year. And Amir Tashem will take it from there. Have a fantastic week.